8. And with God's help, we'll be in verses 9 to 11. Before we get to the sermon, we got homework, right? All right? We're memorizing Romans chapter 8. We're hiding it in our hearts. And uh, I'm looking for someone this morning to recite for us verses 5 to 8. So who's got? All right, Mara, come on. Y'all welcome Mara this morning. Come on. Amen. 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 Well done, sis. Well done. Anybody else this morning for Romans 5 to 8? Good. Come on, Miss Deb. Y'all welcome Deb. Come on. Come on. All right. We're strong out the gate on this side of the room. I'm what's happening on this this side of the room? Charnay, you. <laughs> yeah, come on, that's right. Let's say, do one through eight. That's, that's what I'm talking about. One through eight, y'all. Y'all welcome Ashley. Encourage Ashley. Amen, amen. Watch out now. Watch out now. I, I, I like that. It's like joy on your face too, man. That, that truth is good to you. That's good, man. Romans chapter 8. Next week, um, verses 9 to 11, okay? So we're just adding a, a section at a time. So next week, memorizing verses 9 to 11. Tim, Boston, I see you making eye contact, so I assume you will memorize it for next week. And recite it. He's like, leave me alone, Pastor. <laughs> well, let me pray for us. Father, indeed, bring our word, uh, bring our minds to your word and the things of the Spirit this morning. Um, we pray, speak to us by your word. Instruct us, comfort us, change us, help us, deliver us, strengthen us, guide us, correct us, humble us. Address us, we pray, by your word. Speak, Lord. Your servants listen. Amen. I'm going to date myself again this week. Some of you will know the lyrics to this television show. You take the good, you take the bad, uh-huh. You take them both, and there you have the facts of life. The facts are lie. All right. I, I'm just now, I know what everybody's age is now. <laughs> the Facts of Life was a television show that started in May uh, 1979, I think. 
ran to uh, 1988. It's one of the longest running television sitcoms uh, in the history of American television. And that little theme song became just uh, famous. It, it wasn't a part of the theme song in season one. They added it in season two. And so now when you hear that, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. <laughs> the facts of life. We think a little, uh, what was her name? Uh, Kim Fields. What was that? Tootie. Uh, see, there we go. Y'all remember. You think of Tootie. The song goes on to say this. There's a time you got to go and show. You're growing now. You know about the facts of life. The facts of life. Then it gets interesting. When the world never seems to be living up to your dreams and suddenly you're finding out the facts of life are all about you. You. It says you twice so you don't miss the point. That the facts of life are all about you. Now, I don't doubt that many people in the world believe that. That the world is about them. That actually the world exists to serve their desires. And that the world is wrong if what they want isn't coming to pass. So what started out as a very cute song and a nice jingle that we all remember goes on to sort of inculcate, to teach some things that actually upon inspection are problematic. You don't exist for my pleasure. I don't exist for your pleasure. The world ain't all about you or me. So it was seen we need to do some harder thinking, if we're Christians, about the facts of life. What really are the facts of life? In Romans chapter 8, Paul is really laying down some spiritual facts of life that we all need to get our minds around, especially if we're Christians, and, and we all really ought to build our lives and our identities on. He's already given us two fundamental facts with rationale, with reason to back them up. Fact number one is in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, none. And he gives us the reason. The reason really is the gospel in shorthand. God has freed us from the law of sin and death in Christ Jesus, and he's freed us into the, the, the law of the spirit of life. We couldn't do it. The law was weakened by our flesh, by our sin nature, but God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Then we come down and he gives us the second fact of life in Romans chapter 8, and that is this, that if we are Christians, we have a spiritual mindset. Our minds are set on the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh, not the things of sin, not the things of the world. And, and this is the rationale, that, that when, we, when we are saved and we are Christians and we have God's Spirit, the natural consequence of that is that our hearts and souls and minds are directed to the God who saved us, not to ourselves. We come down now to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11, and Paul is going to give us a, another set of stunning facts. In fact, the, the, these three verses have the same structure. Each verse includes an if-then sentence. If this is true, then this follows. Look with me at Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. I want you to notice something in these three verses. I want you to notice the Trinitarian indwelling through the spirit. 
We see the, the spirit referred to in verse 9. Then in verse 10, it is the spirit of Christ. Then in verse 11, it is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, which is the Father. So Paul writes in Colossians 2, 9 and 10 and other places that all the fullness of God dwells in us. All of the, the Trinitarian being, if you will, through the Holy Spirit is resident in the Christian. So here's the main point for the sermon. The defining characteristic, the defining experience of the Christian and of the Christian church is that God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us communicating to us the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What makes you and I a Christian if we are Christian and what is most significant about us if we are Christians is not the fact of life that is all about us. It is this fact that God lives in us by his spirit. Now, that main point in verses 9 to 11 are supported by, by three facts. Fact number one. This is the outline. You are in the Spirit if you are a Christian. Verse 9. You are in the Spirit if you are a Christian. That's a fact. Number two, fact number two, the Spirit defies the death of the body. The Spirit defies the death of the, of the body, that's verse 10, and the Spirit raises us up in the resurrection, verse 11. And what we want to do is chase these three facts that are thinking about ourselves and our church and about life itself is shaped by the Word of God. Point number one. You are in the Spirit if you are a Christian. Y'all keep missing your place to shout. Verse 9. <laughs> Verse 9. Paul writes there, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, he begins the sentence with, you, however. That's in the emphatic position in the Greek. When you want to emphasize something in the original language, you put it at the front of the sentence. Now, he says, you, however, drawn a distinction from what he just concluded with in verse 8. He writes there in verse 8 that those whose minds are on the flesh cannot please God. Now, if you're just sitting out in the church when this letter is being read and Paul drops that, those whose mind is on the flesh cannot please God, that might shake you a little bit. Because who of us ain't got some fleshly thoughts sometimes? Who of us don't have our sin nature sneak up on us? And we find that actually we've been thinking that thing for longer than we were aware and so that gets read out in the congregation that, that if your minds are set on the things of the flesh, then you cannot please God. That'll make a brother sit up straight, worry a little bit about themselves. And so Paul comes in verse 9, and he emphasizes, you, however, I ain't talking about you. When I talk about people whose minds are on the flesh and people who cannot please God, I ain't talking about you. Let me make it clear. You, however, are not in the flesh. You, if you have the Spirit of Christ, if you have the Spirit, are in the Spirit. Paul wants to be as definitive about that as he was about the fleshly life not pleasing God. Paul wants to reassure the Christian church that he, he wasn't talking about them in verses 7 and 8. He wants to reassure the Christian of their salvation. So he gives us this basic fact for our assurance. If you have the Spirit, then you are in the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, then you are in the Spirit. In other words, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one has the Spirit, and is therefore in the Spirit. Now, notice how Paul uses the phrase here, in the Spirit. He does not use the phrase to refer to a, 
unusual, supernatural, ecstatic, out of control experience. The Bible uses the phrase in the spirit here to refer to the fact that the the spirit is in the Christian. They're, They're synonyms. Every true Christian, since it is true that all Christians have the spirit, then every true Christian is in the spirit. He's not pointing to a second blessing. He's not pointing to a second experience. He's saying this is definitional to what it means to be a a, a Christian. Now, to make things clearer, in case folks didn't understand it, Paul puts it in the reverse. See that second sentence in verse 9? He says it the opposite way. If you do not have the Spirit, then you do not belong to Him, meaning Christ. It means you, you are not a Christian. If you have the Spirit, you are a Christian. If you don't have the Spirit, you are not a Christian. These are the facts of life. Having the Spirit of Christ, having the Holy Spirit live in you, is the defining reality of the Christian's life. I love the way Leon Morris puts it, a New Testament scholar, his commentary on Romans. He says, the presence of the Spirit in believers is not an interesting extra to be seen in a few unusual people, as in the case of the pneumatic, that means spirit uh, men, of, of some ancient religions. It is the normal and necessary feature of being a Christian at all. Now, if you suspect that talk of the Holy Spirit, some people have gone too far in talk of the Holy Spirit, in emphasis on unusual, ecstatic, uh, superhero Christian experience, your suspicion is right. But if you suspect that too many Christians haven't gone far enough to recognize the central role, the defining role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, you're right too. So we got people living beneath their inheritance in the Spirit, and we got people living outside their inheritance in the Spirit. And, and what Paul does here is to say, no, no, no. If you are Christian, it is because you have the Spirit. That is the most important thing about you. It is to be normative, defining, regular, ongoing. Your knowledge of the Spirit's living in you is the thing you are supposed to have if you are a Christian. I mean, if we lose this, there's several things that result. If we lose the necessity and centrality and the defining reality of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, think about what things can result. If we, if we, if we lose that, then, then we will likely try to base our identity on something else. Might be our job title. Might be our education. Might be our sense of personal style. Might be some relationship we in or ain't in. But something else will sneak into the central defining position of our identities if we don't keep in front of us this wondrous fact that God himself lives in us, communicating to, him, to us the fullness of his being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing that can go wrong. If we don't keep this central and defining in our understanding of ourselves, then we will not likely fellowship with God in the Spirit. We won't keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5, 25. We will neglect Him in our daily living. Our our Bible reading will be a duty rather than a delight. Our prayer will be a ride on the struggle bus rather than fellowship with the living God. And so forgetting that the Spirit's presence is our defining reality will likely at some point stop us in frustration and futility from fellowshipping with God himself. There's another thing. If we forget this, we won't likely go to the Holy Spirit in dependence upon him for his power often enough. We will live in our own strength. We will assume that it's down to us to muster up enough grit to get through, all the while 
God lives in you. Number four, if we don't remember that the Holy Spirit is central and defining and necessary to the Christian life, we'll mistakenly think we are alone in the world. We'll begin to think that we've been abandoned, that God's not there, that to somehow feel God's presence means that I've got to do something extra, something extraordinary. I've got to, I've got to do something that is unusual in order to commune with him. When he is right there, you are his temple in whom he lives by his spirit. Let me give you a fifth thing. If we fail to remember that the Spirit's role in our life is central and necessary, then we are likely to fall victim to some false ideas that we as Christians are missing something or need something more than we have. We, we, we may chase false teaching about God is doing a new thing, and we don't want to be left out of the new thing. Uh, we, we, we may chase experiences and, and the supernatural and the extraordinary when in point of fact, the supernatural and the extraordinary is your everyday inheritance because God lives in you. What you running across town for? What you going to that mass rally for? What you buying that jacked up book for? Watching that jacked up video with that false teacher for? God lives in you by his spirit. And he ain't going nowhere. Turn to him, commune with him, fellowship with him, enjoy him, delight him. Yeah. Amen. If we don't think that the Holy Spirit is natural, here's the last one, that he's the central defining experience of the Christian life, guess what else we will tend to do? We will tend to think that our transformation and our sanctification depends upon some other philosophy, ideas, or techniques rather than just sitting with God rather than using what the theologians call the ordinary means of grace. The reading of Scripture, the prayer, the fellowship of the saints, the Lord's Supper, as we will take in just a moment. We believe Christ is present with us because the Spirit is present with us. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as the constant, permanent, central, necessary reality of the Christian life means that the fullness of God through the Holy Spirit is always ours. It means that, that the enjoyment of God is always available to us. It means that the accessibility of God's power is right there. And it means that he's always working in us to make us more like Jesus. Amen. This is the fact of life. The Christian life. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if Christ lives in you. Now, I reckon in a room this size, there's some people who are saying, I object. They don't put it in that words, of course, but you may be sitting there thinking something like this. What if I don't feel like I'm in the spirit. There are two answers. Number one, it does not depend on your feelings, beloved. The indwelling of the spirit of God is an objective reality apart from your feelings. That's why we call it a fact. It exists. It ain't got nothing to do with what you feel like. It exists. The, the world puts too much authority in feelings. So the world, based on feelings, is always getting its identity wrong and, and, and believing lies about itself. Yesterday, I was reminded of the name Rachel Dolezal. Young, young white woman. Been white all her life. That ain't going to change. But she says she feel black. All right. You still white. That's the fact. But, but her feelings have convinced her, contrary to fact, that she's somebody else. We got examples all over us. We've got little boys and girls in schools right now being given medicines to transition from one gender to the other gender because even before they know what male and female should feel like, they're talking about they feel like the other. And parents in their feelings, rather than being parents, wanting to be supportive of their children, are going along with that rather than shaping their children. 
You pay attention to your feelings, it will take you to some strange places. Beautiful women all over our neighborhood allowing themselves to be treated like garbage because they believe they have no worth and they believe that's how it's supposed to be. They believe there's nothing different for them. Young men in our neighborhood shooting one another, taking each other's life. Why? Well, because they believe some false things about themselves. They, they too are not worth anything, ain't going anything. There's nothing different than what's happening on, you know, three square blocks or something. The world is twisting itself into a pretzel and then breaking itself because of feelings that are not factual. But the Christian now, the Christian We base our feelings, we base our sense of identity on the objective truth of God's word, the the facts. This word says that if we are Christians, then God the Holy Spirit lives in us. That's a fact no matter how we feel. Therefore, we must bring our feelings beneath the rule of the facts. I mean, we got to develop what we might call a you don't know me attitude with our feelings. Feelings start whispering to you something contrary to what the Bible says. You need to look at your feelings. Man, you don't know me. You don't know me. God said, I am filled with his spirit. God said, I am the temple of his spirit. You don't, you don't tell me. You don't run nothing here. Feelings. My life, my identity, my world. It's shaped by God's word if we're Christians. So let me invite you. I know you're already careful with this, but let me just sort of invite you to be even more careful anytime you find yourself saying, I was in my feelings. We are in the spirit. Christ is in us. We are in the spirit. Let's be so always. Let's be so consistently. Here's the second response I want to give to the person who says, but I don't feel like I'm in the spirit. Here's here's the other thing I want to tell you, though. That feeling may be, it may be a good gift from God indicating to you that you need more time fellowshipping with God or you need to put to death something that's fleshly. Right? So we have to be able to tell the difference between our feeling, when our feelings are lying to us about the truth of God's word and when our feelings are telling us the truth about how we're living in Christ. If you feel down or guilty or ashamed because of sin or foolish living, then Peter says you should feel that way. Not this Peter, the Peter in the Bible. He said that's because of what we have done. And so we should pay attention to our feelings if they are telling us accurately that we are not living like Christ, that we are not living in a manner worthy of the gospel, that there is some sin in our life or some pattern of thinking in our life that is not in accord with the Spirit. And having identified that, we should then repent and turn to Christ. Fix Fix the feeling by fixing the problem, the sin problem. But don't let the feeling lie to you about the truth. The basic fact is, God lives in you by his spirit. All of him by his spirit. Fact number two, the life of the spirit exists even during the death of the body. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, The spirit is life because of righteousness. And one of the things you will notice when you read your Bibles is that the Bible presents an interesting kind of paradox, a series of paradoxes um, with regard to the Christian life. The Christian life in this case has a, a death aspect to it and a life aspect to it at the same time. And we see in verse 10 that this, this death-defying aspect of the Christian life is, is sort of framed by two contrasts. There's a contrast between the body with the spirit and the contrast between death and life. And you see that phrase there in the middle that Paul, Paul gives. On the one hand, the Christian is a person whose body is dead because of sin. 
It's a somewhat difficult phrase to understand. But Paul means here the physical body is dead. He uses the word body literally. And the question is, is well, how, how can that be since our bodies are moving and active and, and show the, the signs of life in that regard? In one sense, this is the problem that Paul has been working out ever since Romans chapter 5. So what we do is keep your finger in Romans 8, jump back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and then we're going to cherry pick a few verses over the next couple of chapters. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The original curse against sin in the garden was death. Our first parent, Adam, sinned against God, and as a consequence of his sin, death came into the world, and death has been spreading like poison ivy. Every one of us, born in sin, touched by death. Now, even as Christians, we have to deal with this body of sin. That's the phrase that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Look there with me. He writes, we know that our old self was crucified with him, that is Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. So Christ's death on the cross is the decisive victory uh, over sin in our own bodies. We died with Christ. We died to sin. And so now sin, which always looks to enslave us, no longer has power to enslave the Christian. But we're still in this body of death. And sin is still looking to control us. And so we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let's jump down there, six verses. Paul says this, Let not sin therefore reign where? In your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The body is always with us and always seeking to re-enslave us to its passions and sinful desires. The body keeps speaking to us about what it wants and what it wants brings sin and death. That's why Paul cries out in Romans chapter 7 now, verse 24, having thought about this issue for three chapters, That's why he cries out in Romans 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from what? This body of death. So we should understand Paul to be referring to our physical bodies in verse 10. We should understand that our bodies, when it comes to sinful desire, are not our friends. Your appetites, my appetites, are not our friends. Our passions are are not our friends. Our sinful nature, our body, will desire things that are contrary to God. And it will desire it so loudly that it will seem right sometimes. Your body will desire sexual satisfaction. And it will scream for it. And it will insist on it. And then you will begin to think, well, a man got needs. A woman got needs. That's your body talking. That is not the Spirit of God. Your body will scream out in its appetites for one more plate, one more bite, another refill. And we will be walking, if we're listening to our bodies, toward gluttony and greed. I'm keenly aware of that because I'm on the keto diet right now. (laughs) And my body's just like, we need carbohydrates, brother. Pray for your pastor. We don't often think about it, but our bodies are speaking parts of our person, demanding, greedy, and it wants control. And you know what? You can't give it a little bit. You can't give it a little bit. It gets stronger. 
It gets hungrier. It says more and more. And you think you were pacifying it? You think you were calming it down by giving it just a little bit? Next thing you know, it's taking you farther than you wanted to go, keeping you there longer than you wanted to stay. That's right. It must be put to death. It is producing death. We don't want to cooperate with it. And we don't have to. It's right in the middle of the death of our bodies that the Spirit shows Himself to be a death-defying life to us. The Bible says if Christ is in you, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. To quote again from Leon Morris, he says, We should accordingly take death to be physical death. Because we have sinned, we will die. And I love this. (laughs) But this is not the really significant thing. What's the really significant thing? The really significant thing is the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life. Notice the verse says, it does not say the Spirit gives life. The verse says the Spirit is life. It doesn't say there's a transaction going on, uh, whereas you do certain things uh, like righteousness, the Spirit's going to give you life. No, it says the Spirit is in your life, and the Spirit is life. For as long as the Spirit is in your life, you shall have life, because that's who the Spirit is. The body is death because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Not ours. Jesus's. Remember that Jesus lived 33 years on the earth. And every day, every moment of that 33 years, Jesus obeyed God the Father perfectly. To offer to the Father a perfect righteousness without blemish in it. A righteousness that we could not offer. He has become for us our righteousness, our holiness, our sanctification, our redemption. So the righteousness that is in view here is the Spirit communicating to us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That righteousness has been written on your heart. That righteousness has taken up residence in your life. That's why you find yourself desiring it. That's why you find yourself seeking it. That's why you find yourself mourning when you miss it. It's because the Spirit is life because of righteousness, and that Spirit is producing righteous life in us. These are the facts of life. Here's the thing, beloved. All the perfect obedience of Jesus is far more powerful in its ability to give life than all the death-dealing destruction of sin combined. It ain't even close. That's why the righteousness of Christ means life to us, even though this mortal body is dying because of sin. Because of Jesus' righteousness which reduces in us our own acts of righteousness through faith. All those who have Jesus in them are truly alive, even now. The Spirit is life to us. Paul argues this again in Romans 5. Look there with me. Romans 5, verses 17 to 19. And Paul is dealing with how the gospel addresses this death that's in us. Romans 5, 17, he says, For if because of one man's trespass, because of one man's sin, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It's been a trade there. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, judgment, hell for all men, so one act of righteousness, the death on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the difference between you and the Christian next to you isn't that they're better people. The difference between you and the Christian next to you is Jesus has stood in the gap for them. 
They have trusted Christ to be the one to rescue them from their sin and to be the one to provide their righteousness and eternal life. And listen, beloved, this ain't a matter of them even being smarter than you. They were dumb in sin like everybody else. You know what it is? It's a matter of humility. Being humble enough to admit that you're a sinner and humble enough to admit that you cannot save yourself and humble enough to call upon the name of Jesus Christ to be your righteousness and to carry away your sin and to rescue you and give you eternal life. If you would trust in Jesus, there would be no difference between you and the Christian because you would be a Christian and Christ would be living in you through his spirit. Trust him. Call upon his name. Believe in him so that you might be saved. This brings us to our third fact. The Holy Spirit is God's solution to our death problem, as we saw in verse 10. But he's also the solution to our body problem. Because the Spirit will raise us in the resurrection. Notice in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I like this. Because in a fallen world, we all have distorted relationships with our bodies. We we think about that most often when we think about uh, the ways we are dissatisfied with our figure or our weight or Wish we were a little taller. Wish we were a baller. Whatever, whatever it is, right? <laughs> we all have distorted relationships with our bodies. The good news is we ain't stuck with these bodies. That's especially good news when it comes to the body of sin. God is not content merely to give us life despite the body of death that we have. He actually is pleased to give us a new body altogether. We need a body that is fitting for this life. We need a body that is fitting for the life of God that is in us. This dead body can't contain all the glory that's in God. This dead body can't contain all the wonder and the mystery and the power and the beauty and the splendor that is in God, in the life that God has given us. This body is going to have to return to dust. Can't carry such glory. Check out the if-then structure of verse 11 again. Here's the condition. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now, by this point in the verse, in in the paragraph, we ought to be clear that we've satisfied that condition. The first fact is, is that the spirit lives in us. It's the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So this condition has been satisfied, and so if it's satisfied, if we have the Spirit, we are in the Spirit, and the Spirit in us, and then notice what follows in the second half of verse 11. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So much good news there, beloved. So much good news in there. Take that word dwells. Mentioned twice in the verse. The idea runs through the whole section. I love what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, referring to the Holy Spirit, he is there as a man in his own house where he is constant and welcome and has the dominion. Leon Mars, to quote him again, comes along and says, the spirit is not an occasional visitor. He takes up residence in God's people. Oh, so the first good news is the spirit ain't never moving out. Can't be evicted. 
ain't got no rent payments to make. He done already purchased you with the blood of Christ. He ain't going nowhere. He lives in you like a man in his own house. We have a, uh, a cliche that, that a man is the king of his own castle. Well, you are God's castle in whom he lives by his spirit. He lives in there like king. That's good news, beloved. We'll never lose the presence of the Spirit. The second word there that's good news too is, is death. Death has an expiration date. It ain't forever. Death don't get the last word. God ain't done raising people. He ain't no one-trick pony. He ain't no one-hit wonder. It ain't like God raised Jesus and that was it. He ain't, you know, that's his only hit song. God like, no, 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 no. I'm going to remix this by all of the people that I say. I'm going to replay this song and keep it on loop. I raised Jesus. I will raise you by the same spirit. That's good news. Death is over. Life has come. This body will die its death and be buried like the husk and the shell that it is, but we're going to be given a glorified body in the resurrection. We're going to be given a body like Jesus, and in that body, we will be made able to receive and to hold and to enjoy all that God is for all of time. God ain't done. He says, I'm giving you my spirit as a down payment on your glory with me. He's going to keep you and dwell in you. He's going to cleanse you and, and preserve you. And then we're going to transform you into the image and likeness of Christ. Now, what's crazy? What's bananas? I mean, what we ought to get rocked up on right here is that that same power which raised Jesus from the dead is already at work in those who believe. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He prays that the church would, would know the surpassing greatness of God's power. And he clarifies the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That work, that power is already going on in every one of us who belongs to Christ. We are right now foretasting, sipping on the glory of the resurrection. And we will, on that day, experience it all, have it to the full. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. This morning, beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is really the Christian offer to you. This is really God's offer to you. He offers you everlasting life. I love the way Jesus puts it in John chapter 11. He's talking there with a woman who is mourning the loss of her cousin. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? Do you believe this, Christian? That in believing in Jesus, though you die, yet you shall live? In point of fact, you shall never die? Because you have passed from life to life and the spirit who is life lives in you. Do you believe that, Christian? And my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, will you believe it? Will you believe that Jesus gives life, that he is the resurrection and the life so that anyone who believes in him, even if they die, yet they will live. In fact, they will never die but pass from death to life. Believe it. Jesus never lied. Never got the facts of life wrong. Trust him. Give yourself to him. And you will begin to live. And you will never stop living. My Christian friend, based on that same text, you and I are never going to die. Never going to die. 
the death of our body right now is all the death we will ever really experience. This, this body will be laid down, as we said before, but we won't experience the second death. We won't be separated from God in the judgment. And what are we told in the Scriptures? To be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. Amen. It is as Jesus said. We will never die. Whoever believes in him will go on living. That's you, Christian. You are an always living, never dying person because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit who is life lives in you. And you'll never be separated from them. So here's the question as we end. What would it look like for you and I as Christians to live each day in light of the fact that we will never die but live forever because the Spirit who is life lives in us? How can we live this resurrection life right now? It's ours to live. The Spirit gives to us. It won't be taken away. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your table now, help us to hold fast to what we have heard. Help us to hold fast to this wonderful truth that you live in us by your Spirit. That your Spirit is called by different titles, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, the the Holy Spirit. But it is the one same Spirit communicating to us who you are, what you've done for us, your presence with us your love, your grace, your mercy, your power. Lord, help us to live more fully in the Spirit that we might, Lord, know your nearness and know your heart. We thank you for these facts, Lord. Let these facts shape our identities and let us walk in this truth, we pray. And let us hold this glorious offer out to our neighbors, and friends, and co-workers. And be pleased, O Lord, to bring more and more people into this life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have the privilege this morning of concluding our service with a celebration of life. A celebration of eternal life as we remember the death of Christ. He gave his life that we might have life. And we memorialize and remember and participate in that sacrifice each time we observe the Lord's Supper. So I invite my fellow pastors to come join me as we uh, prepare for the supper.